Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. We did hung up on, we did hung up. Wow, this is going to be a great podcast. We did hung up. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Dara Lind, Jane Coaston, joining us from Chicago, Illinois. Uh, we wanted to talk about Representative Katie Hill, uh, sort of the the other scandal that is afflicting <laughs> Washington. Uh, yeah, this days. is this is not the most characteristic move the weeds has ever pulled to say let's uh, pivot away from serious issues of of national security law and congressional procedure to talk about what could be described as a sex scandal. But it has, I would say, more broad relevance yes. than this. This Trump-Ukraine thing, I think, will probably not recur. Uh, whereas uh, Representative Hill's situation raises a lot of questions that I think are dealt with all the time and, and will be on a continuing basis. Uh, so for those who, who don't know this story, Katie Hill is a young first-year member of Congress. She beat a Republican in 2018. This was one of these, like, California suburban seats that had swung kind of hard from Mitt Romney to Hillary Clinton. Uh, the Republican incumbent got reelected in 2016. Then she beat him. She's, I think, 30, 33 years old, something like that. One of the youngest members of Congress, uh, you know, was like a— uh, an interesting rising star in, in that sense. Had been, you know, not just a rising star in the point in the sense that, like, a lot of freshman members of Congress have gotten a lot of media attention because they're kind of a younger generation and very savvy and things. But, like, House leadership had actually, like, appointed her to a position in the caucus kind of rising star. Yes, as one of the the official freshman, you know, delegates. Um, so not not a media star in the sense of of, of the squad people, but the, the next generation of, like, mainstream Democrats. Um, and then it all started to unravel as Red State began publishing stories that she had had an affair with a staffer, that she and her husband had had a, a threesome with the staffer. Well, it, it's, it's more complicated than that because they were apparently engaged in a polyamorous relationship that the husband was aware of, the, like as far as we know. And it, it's complicated because there are a lot of pieces to the story. And there have been kind of the the way that conservatives have interpreted it was like, you know, this is a clear cut case of someone misusing their power over a subordinate or or perhaps two subordinates. And then from people on like more liberal perspectives is, yes, that was bad, but also the publication of 
photographs of her that were clearly weaponized to be the most embarrassing, especially in a political context, you know, the most embarrassing photographs possible. And the fact that there were allegedly at least 700 photos given to GOP operatives in California. The fact that a lot of the photos now it's important because I, I keep getting this confused when trying to track this story is that there is a campaign staffer with whom Hill was apparently in, engaged in a relationship, also with her husband, who and, is and female. And that she has acknowledged and said, like, it was inappropriate, but, yes. you know, I take responsibility for it. Right. Then there is uh, Hill's male legislative director, Graham Kelly, who is who Red State reported on October 18th. And, the you know, the story went for, to Red State, Breitbart, a California-based conservative website, and eventually to the Daily Mail. And when it goes to the Daily Mail, that's when everything got pretty blown up. Um, but Hill has denied having a relationship with the legislative director. And interestingly um, to me— is that all of the photographs and everything about this was all focused on the female campaign staffer with whom the relationship would be a very bad idea, but would not technically break House rules. Apparently, she went on to work on with her in office, which would also be a bad idea. But a lot of this seemed to be weaponizing one, Hill Hill is bisexual. She's talked a lot about that. And it seemed to be weaponizing that, which is actually something that Representative Matt Gates picked up on, who has actually been one of the most outspoken advocates for Hill and saying that this is all happening because of an acrimonious divorce from Hill's husband and because Katie Hill is different because she's queer. But you know, there are a lot of different moving parts of the story. Dara, I heard you take an intake of Yeah, breath. I mean, there is a, like, the question of... The house, the kind of house ethics rules is a very, very relevant one here. Right. Um, And it's not my understanding is that it's not quite as clear cut as as long as it's just a campaign staffer. She's in the clear like it was not explicitly against house ethics rules for a member of Congress to have a relationship with a, a sexual relationship with a staffer until last year. You know, there is that that definitely is explicitly beyond the pale. However, the House Ethics Committee has also kind of established that it does have jurisdiction over potential ethics violations in successful congressional campaigns. So whether this particular thing would rise to the level of you're going to be sanctioned because of behavior that happened before you arrived in the House is kind of in this specific case not super clear, but it's not it's not as clear cut as she's admitted to the thing that couldn't get her kicked out, or that, that couldn't get her sanctioned. And, you know, there, there, we also don't know what the House Ethics investigation would have found because it was obviously, like, still ongoing at the time she resigned, and now it's going to shut down because she's resigned and it's moot. It is, I think, interesting that there's kind of a split between the relationship we have pictures for in the relationship we don't, uh, right. or the alleged relationship we don't, the relationship she's admitting to and the relationship she's denying, or the alleged relationship she's denying, rather, and, like, the fact that the photos are in the context of an explicit photo of two women in w- what might have been a situation where they were taken by a man, whereas the, like, clear-cut ethics violation, if it existed, would be a heterosexual relationship. And I'd, I'd also want to add in that, um, and we'll we'll talk more about the revenge porn angle, though I, I really hate that term because it's 
I mean, th- it's the term we use because I think that the you know the listener will kind of know what we're talking about. But I don't like it, and I, I if people have other suggestions, I want to hear about them. There are attorneys for former Representative Hill who are now getting involved. She has a legal team of Mark Elias and Rachel Jacobs from the firm Perkins Coy, who you may have heard of. And they they sent a cease and desist to the Daily Mail. They've sent letters to other publications, especially because the Daily Mail um, implied that she had a Nazi tattoo based on some of the photographs, because, again, this is the Daily Mail. This is kind of what they do. So I think that there, there are a lot of different moving pieces to this story. My first reaction when I saw, the, when, when when these allegations came up, was to just purely take Hill's side of it. And, you know, almost in a spirit of, like, you know, like, you go, girl. Like, you know, th- th- this stuff has been going on for, for a long time, and and sort of who, who cares? And, you know, I, I talked to some people, and they sort of talked me out of that position. Um, it's, in fact, like, bad to be doing this. Uh, members of Congress should not be having relationships with their staffers. It's a very vulnerable position. You know, the unusual gender dynamic here is interesting as a subplot, but doesn't fundamentally change the issue. And also that, you know, I mean, I, a reaction that I, I've seen from a lot of people on Twitter is like, aha, like this is a double standard. A woman is being punished for something we know male members of Congress have done a lot over the years, uh, which is absolutely true. But I do think it's relevant that the House like literally adopted new rules about this last year, right? And at the time those rules were being adopted, I think most people thought that was a good change, right? That was a collective statement on the part of the House of Representatives that a form of behavior that it was known had been going on and that had, like, was bad and should stop. And when you change the rules, like, there there has to be a first case of enforcing the new rules. And, like, yes, like, it sucks to be the person who is subjected to the new, harsher rules when other people have gotten away with it. But, like, that, that's what changing the rules means. And, you know— uh, on that level, like, that, that is good to see, and it establishes precedent that, you know, hopefully will be of some use in the future. That said, like, the aspect of this that has to do with the photos and stuff is is terrible, but also I don't—it does seem like a bit of a red herring. Like, the misconduct here is real. Right. So I'm genuinely not sure that that's—I mean— I think that in order to know that for sure, we would have to run the counterfactual where the photos don't come out and see if she still ends up resigning and if not, what the ethics investigation says. I think it's relevant that she doesn't resign when the investigation gets open. She resigns after the photos come out. And, like, that's relevant both because she was not taking, you know, just, like, putting her head down and going home. She resigned with a very clear statement that what had happened to her in terms of the photos being publicized was a— a miscarriage of justice, and she's said that she's going to continue to work on, you know, this issue, like, quote-unquote, revenge porn, non-consensual intimate photo sharing, which is a really unfortunate acronym now that I think about it. So you can kind of, you know, it did give her, if not, like, not not an out, but certainly a way to resign without looking like she was accepting that she had done things wrong. I'm right, genuinely well, I- not sure that you that she would have— resigned if the photos hadn't leaked, just because I've seen enough cases where having visual evidence gives a story legs and gives people, like, 
you know, makes it no longer a he said, she said kind of thing, makes people feel that there is, in fact, quote unquote, proof that one party is in the right and the other party is in the wrong. And that's where I get a little bit into, like, it's not that I think it's obvious that there are male members of Congress who have done identical things and haven't been punished under these new rules. I do, however, think it's interesting that the first time that this comes up in such a way that House ethics has to engage is in the context of an acrimonious divorce with a partner who Hill says was abusive. And like, we don't have a lot of details on that. That's not to say that she's obligated to provide them. Certainly the fact that there, it seems very, very plausible and more likely than not that Hill's husband was involved in the leaking of the photos is suggestive evidence that he may not have her best interests at heart right now, to say the least. And I do wonder if that part of the story plays out the exact same way if it's a male member of Congress. I think that there is an opportunity to play into ideas of women and specifically bisexual women in positions of power being you know, being sexually manipulative and sexually promiscuous that made it obvious that photos like this would hurt Katie Hill in a way that maybe they wouldn't have hurt a male member. Well, and especially, again, that the photos are of the female partner, not the alleged male partner. And the fact, like, the entire thing about this, and, you know, you we could get into, like, you know, the fact that these photos, where these photos went, these photos did not go to the New York Times. They also did not go to Democratic operatives in California, where, you know, hypothetically, it could have been something like they talked to Katie Hill, Katie Hill resigns for personal reasons, and then they have a special election at some point. That's not what happened here. Also, Hill's uh, now estranged husband has been going on a press tour of sorts, talking to the New York Post about how Katie Hill wanted him to do all the dishes, which I'm like, yeah, sure, do some dishes. But like, I think that this very much, um, I, Hayes Brown at BuzzFeed, uh, he made the point that this is in a weird way, perhaps like the first millennial congressional sex scandal, because it involves like a you know, a queer woman who is in a relationship that is, you know, when you talk to, I, I was uh, reading an article from a kind of a right-leaning site that was talking about how conservatives view polyamory as kind of like the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. And just this idea of like, like, like this threatening sexual relationship, you know, Red State originally described it as a thruple, which is a t- really odd word, though it perhaps is accurate. I don't like it. I'm not liking a lot of words today, but like this entire thing just seems like such a interesting test of this particular you know, house house ethics understanding. But on the other hand, you know, I think that it is worth saying that, you know, I did a lot of work um, kind of as the Me Too movement hit Congress on, uh, you know, how people were getting paid off, essentially, or, you know, how the judgment fund was being used to pay people off or, you know, pay off staffers who'd been sexually harassed or in sexual relationships with people to whom they were subordinate. And it's there is a, a way to say that this entire story includes a lot of different pieces. And Katie Hill did something bad. And also something bad happened to Katie Hill. All of that can be true at once. Yeah, we should take a break. But I definitely I, I do think we should like I don't mean to give short shrift to, to Matt's concerns about the power dynamic here. I think we should right. dig into that a little more. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I've started to see a little bit of a left labor critique of the kind of reflexive kind of LGBT rights defense of Katie Hill, uh, which has been that like that, you know, what what Matt said earlier, that like if you're on the side of the subordinate, you know, and you worry about workplace dynamics being used for sexual harassment, like that holds regardless of gender. And you need to assume, you know, if you're going to have the principle that you that the subordinate is to be protected from any kind of like sexual come on, then you then that has to be consistent. And so I do think that like the extent to which we're talking about this as a consensual relationship has to be shaded by that. The other factor here, and this is where it gets really, really hard to know what is legit, what is innuendo, what is stuff that like maybe would have come up in a House ethics investigation, but we're now not going to have that is like there are these allegations that the campaign staffer was abused in the relationship. And there are text messages, presumably to Hill's ex-husband, that have been leaked that have said, you know, I was in a, it was a dark time, but I stayed and I blame myself for that. Not a great look and something that definitely does play into the idea that the power dynamic in the workplace was affecting this in a coercive way. But it's also, it's really hard for me to extricate that from the idea that regardless of what Hill was in her workplace, it is also possible that she was in a an abusive marriage. And that if that shades into the workplace, I'm not sure that it's as easy to say that Hill was the person with power here. 
Yes. I mean, look, I, I think there's a there's a sense in which that's true. And also, you know, look, if you hear any stories about congressional campaigns, it's like not unusual for the candidate's spouse to be both a crucial actor in the campaign and also not have a formal role there, you know, whatsoever. I just think, you know, fundamentally, right, you have a candidate. She's running for office. You got people who are like, they, they look up to her. They they want to work for her. They want to help her win, right? And not just like— They have to believe that she is a good and worthwhile person in order to put in the insane hours that campaign work asks. Yeah, and it's it's a devotion, right? Like it's a cause and, and a calling, and I think it is like an— It's not new to the world, but it is an abuse of the kind of trust that people— Put in the candidates that they that they work for. Um, whether that's Hill doing it, whether this is an abusive husband who's manipulating all the relevant players, you know, it's like it's still it's still bad. Um, but I, I think we should we should talk about the husband and we should talk about the the topic of quote unquote revenge porn. This was actually a new term to me? Really? Yes. Oh, man. I think Jane and I are both the veterans of several waves of state laws attempting to criminalize this, followed by hot legal takes that like a lot of behavior that state legislatures try to criminalize. It's already illegal. Yeah. So I, I have used Google and I've seen that this dispute has been kicking around state law for a while. The basic idea of revenge porn is that people in relationships have naked pictures of each other and then after they break up, you can maliciously leak them? Like, is that the— Yes, that is That is generally—I uh, mean, or not necessarily in relationships. This this often—you know, this is kind of a close cousin to a what is, if you believe the media, and I don't have regular contact with high schoolers, so how would I know otherwise, a very common form of online cyberbullying of high school students is like a, you know— you will ask someone who you believe to be interested in you to send you intimate pictures and then you'll like share them around. The revenge, right. the kind of the revenge porn as it's become thought of in kind of the criminal context, well, the context in which it's th- thought of when states are passing laws criminalizing it isn't that kind of 15-year-old boy sends picture of 14-year-old girl to all his friends. It's, it's you know, sites that in, on which like ex-lovers who feel wronged can post all of these photos of their exes with identifying information. And there are habitues of these sites who appear to be very dedicated to then tracking people down in other contexts and, you know, making sure that those photos follow them. That is a much more clearly malicious aspect. However, the kind of balance in criminal law between if you don't write a criminal statute that treats that differently from the sending a few texts around to your friends and you kind of set the criminal penalty at such a level that it's not obviously too strict for the the lesser offense, it's obviously not strict enough for the greater offense and vice versa. And so we've kind of hit a point where like in California, for example, yes, non-consensual sharing of intimate photos is a you know, it's a misdemeanor, but it's only a misdemeanor. And so there are arguments from kind of anti-sexual harassment advocates that it is not strict enough, while at the same time you keep seeing these stories of people getting convicted of, like, sex trafficking or whatever for doing things that are obviously less malicious in nature. Katie Hill is a representative in California, and in California in 2018, a former law student won a $6.45 million judgment against an ex-boyfriend who did this. He sent links of her to her mother. He posted them on Tumblr, OkCupid, and a bunch of other websites 
websites and also distributed the plaintiff's home address around. And this is something that, you know, uh, I found a couple of examples in which there were websites in which people were sharing photographs of their ex-girlfriends with the explicit purpose of embarrassing them and, you know, that were leading to people, you know, facing real danger. And one of the biggest challenges for women, it's generally women who deal with this, though men have had to deal with this also, is that the police had no idea what to do with it. You know, there there was a New York Times piece from earlier this year from a woman who was among the first to file a lawsuit for this. And when she filed a police report, the deputy, you know, involved uh, closed the case and asked her out. And so, you know, this is something I think that this is another example of something where what's taking place and where the law and specifically law enforcement are on it are way far apart. And so, you know, uh, Representative Jackie Spear, who's been a real leader on sexual harassment in Congress, she was one of the people who was filing, you know, who was working on legislation, you know, with Republicans also last year to deal with the issue of harassment on in, on the Hill, especially of interns and pages and also. But she introduced a federal bill that would criminalize revenge porn. But again, it does get into the, you know, it's very difficult, as Dara put it, to write a law that is like, okay, 14-year-old texting 15-year-old, that's not going to send you to prison. But 45-year-old sharing photos to millions of people in order to embarrass and potentially you know, physically harm an ex or someone they perceive as an ex, you could go to prison. Like It's a really challenging needle to thread, so to speak. I mean, I think there's also especially for people who may have been in committed relationships since before easy taking of like high quality photos on your phone became a thing. Like there is something of a generational split here where like sending intimate photos is just like a an accepted practice among people who are among many younger people in a way it is not of many older people. Right. That's just like I do not have polling data on this. It is a generational split that I'm straight up going to assert. Maybe, you know, if someone has like actual data that can prove me wrong, that's great. But I think a lot of these things that come into the public eye when there's a scandal involving a politician there's often a kind of recalibration of like, how much should we be expecting any given innocent person who hadn't done anything wrong to have evidence like this, right? Like, is there an extent to which you should you just shouldn't be allowing people to take naked photos of you because they could be used against you? Isn't that just common sense? And, you know, in a, there's definitely an instinct against victim blaming. But at the same time, it kind of really is hard to say. Like, not it's not very easy to know quite yet what accepted practices are like are we in a place where given existing kind of cloud storage and sharing of files and that kind of thing it would be easy to make sure that the that each party in a relationship has control over that like there are definite questions here in terms of just how people use and share intimate photos that make it so that it's really hard to say, does every member of Congress who is 45 or younger have something that could be used against them? Or is this really something that is specific to like the weirdnesses that already exist in this relationship, which brings us back to the question of, is she being pathologized because of her sexual orientation and the, you know, relationship practices that she and her husband were engaged in in 2018? I also, I want to just be very clear here that I think one of the things is like, quote unquote, revenge porn is not 
not just like sending photos to someone and then they share them with others or something like that. A lot of times, you know, there's a reason why a lot of people have started putting little things over their computer cameras because there have been examples of people using those computer cameras or taking them over from other computers or other computer networks to take pictures. Right. And also keep in mind, like, you know, we have a God-given right to take selfies of ourselves to make sure we look cute. And I, you know, (laughs) just... Being able to do that and especially having control of your own images on your own phone or on your own cloud, I think that that's something, you know, I I have seen a little bit of like, you know, you could only be taking naked pictures of yourself if you're meaning to do something sketchy. I'm like, you know, if you're in a, come on, like, it's not a wildly libertarian perspective to say you can take pictures of yourself or in in the context of a relationship or not a relationship and not expect that those photos will be used against you in some sort of public forum. But I think we, we should draw a distinction, right? Because Jane mentioned that there's a lot of, like, mischief that can be done. Yes. Now that there are simply more recording devices in the world, right? Right. But also I think there's always been a firm, like, social consensus, right, that, like, hiding an illicit camera in a hotel room, taking pictures of somebody unawares— and then distributing them, that, like, that is wrong. Right. right? Like, the harshest prosecutions on this stuff have been on, like, computer fraud and, like, you know, anti-hacking laws, because both because those are where strict criminal penalties are and also because that's a clear-cut case of you weren't even supposed to have access to this Right. Stuff. And it's also obvious, like, what the right, like, behavioral—what what the desired behavioral outcome is, is, like, for people to not hijack other people's cameras, to not conceal recording devices, to not have security personnel at hotels misappropriating uh, th- those resources. I mean, it's difficult in practice, but, like, those are issues that are fairly clear-cut, right? The harder question, right, is in a world where everybody is carrying cameras around in their pockets all the time, and so people take a lot of photos of all kinds of things, and where it has become free, essentially, to distribute photos, is that there's a clash between uh, there's like a common sense view that like you have moral ownership rights over images of yourself, and there's like the practical and legal reality that is actually the person who takes the picture who has legal rights over it. And in a digital age, just whoever happens to have a copy of the picture has practical control over it, right? And, like, that's the problem, right? Like, technologically, what what we would want is for some way that, like, with your brain rays, you could capture all pictures of yourself that are, like, out there somewhere and, and eliminate them if you wanted to, right? Because you didn't like the picture or because the context, the interpersonal dynamic between you and whoever has them has changed or it was sent to somebody you didn't want to have it, right? But there's no way to do that. Like, you are not actually linked Until to you have advanced of, enough facial recognition technology for right. this to— Well, and, and, but, but, it, but that would be a huge shift in, like, copyright law, you know? So the, the like, you know, intimate nature or, quote-unquote, porn aspect of it, like, kicks it into a different conceptual category for, for a lot of people for obvious reasons, right? But it's just, like, the, the basic, like, like the way image rights work is that, like, if I take a picture of you, that's my picture. It's not your picture. And I think there's something a little, like, off about that, like, in politeness terms, if I take a picture of somebody and they're like, no, 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 don't post that. Like, I I wouldn't do it because I'm not an asshole. But, like, there's no way to stop me, right? right? And, like, that's sort of the... 
I don't want to say that's the problem here, but it's like the underlying dynamic that's hard to solve. We have a world where we want people to be able to take lots of pictures, to share them easily. Like it's a, it's a outside the revenge porn context, like it's great. Everyone's having fun all the time taking and sharing pictures. When this turns into the revenge porn context, you know, into the decision to then like publish those photos, especially if it's a site that is dedicated to like clearing houses of these, there's a certain circularity, right? The reason that you do this is to damage the life of the person who's the subject of the photos. It's very hard to imagine that whoever leaked those photos of Katie Hill didn't do it with the understanding that it was going to make it harder for her to remain in Congress. But it only has that power because of social sanction, right? Like the House Ethics Committee wasn't going to investigate whether that was Katie Hill in those photos, The reason that that had that power is because it's seen, you know, it's again, as I said earlier, it's like visual evidence that makes it seem like one party is in the wrong. So in theory, if you take the understanding that like a lot of people have these photos out there and the fact that someone could then publish it is a reflection of the ethics of the publisher, not of the conduct of the person who's in the photo, like you could see kind of a deliberate desire to kind of ratchet that down, right? But that would require not just kind of people talking less harshly about members of Congress, but also like in cases where the picture is being sent to your mother or Facebook friends are saying, hey, this person messaged me these these gross photos of you. You It would require a lot of people being willing to deal with stuff in basic interpersonal dynamics that like – If you're not used to seeing someone naked, it can be very, very difficult to deal with. So, you know, I think that there often when this sort of thing comes up or like evidence of youthful misconduct that was captured on social media, I often wonder, is this still going to be a thing 20 years from now? Like, will you still be able to shame someone into resigning by posting nude photos of them? Or will it still will it just kind of be assumed that, like, yes, that's a thing that people have on each other? But I'm not sure that this norm is going to change on its own. I think there are a lot of much more complicated kind of small-scale private citizen things that need to change before we can start holding public figures to, like, the kind of level of eh, whatever, of private citizens. I think also, you know, this is going to be an ongoing challenge because I remember thinking that, you know, one of the funniest things about, you know, I'm 32, and one of my— most cherished random memories is like the year uh, of like my senior year of college where I noticed everyone from high school suddenly deleting just waves of photographs because everyone realized like, oh, we have to go get jobs now. And so suddenly the picture of you like chugging Smirnoff while wearing a Catholic schoolgirls uniform was like, oh, we should probably take that one down. And some people like changing the names that they used on Facebook so that they couldn't be found from other people's photographs. And I remember thinking to myself, like, there's going to be a time when, you know, we all hit the age, you know, obviously you can run for Congress at a different age when then you can run for president, but like the age at which people are going to want to start to run for office and everyone's, you know, everyone, I kind of thought that it would be this kind of mutually assured destruction that because we all had photographs or something of us doing something of us, I don't know, shotgunning a beer or smoking a bong or doing something that we'd all kind of be like, okay, you know, if you were photographed doing this, you know, so was the person who is yelling at you about being photographed doing this. Ergo, we can't yell at each other. Apparently, I was just really optimistic at the time because I do think, though, that there's going to need to be 
on a personal level and perhaps you know cross generational level a conversation about the fact that like look like we are entering an age in which we are perhaps the most photographed generation to have ever existed you know it, it's funny because I was thinking I was watching a documentary recently where they were just talking about how you know up until like you know the 1930s 1940s people would not be photographed doing everyday things and now we have you know i have thousands of pictures on my phone of just like various events or meals or like this tree looked nice that day and so i think that there's going to need to be kind of a coming to terms of the fact of we're all incredibly engaged in images and specifically images of ourselves and other people around us. And that's going to be, you know, we're starting to see how that's going to change how we think about what constitutes a scandal or what can be used against other people, especially because all of us have these in some senses. And for, you know, I've gotten really tired of the like, well, just don't take these pictures. I'm like, no, the question is not don't do this. It is don't use these against people for political purposes. I think what I've learned from the last like decade as, you know, I've I've also come to the kind of come away from the mutually assured destruction view. But I I think that what we've learned is that norms don't change on their own. Either like this can be the beginning of a conversation about like what exactly is an appropriate thing to judge someone for, or we're going to continue having this conversation for like ages and ages and ages, only it's going to be like, I don't know, holograms? What's the next thing? Yeah, revenge holograms. Revenge oh, holograms. No. Oh, good luck. Well, They're coming yeah. after you. We're not even talking about deep fakes. There's a great Today Explained episode on deep, deep fakes. We'll put it in the show notes. That sounds good. Okay, let's let's take another break. Let's get back to uh, uh, dull healthcare uh, white papers. Mortality, yo. Our origins. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. All right, we got today for you Medicaid and Mortality, New Evidence from Linked Survey and Administrative Data by Sarah Miller, Sean Altacruz, Norman Johnson, and Laura Wary. Um, for one thing, just got to love that they have survey data and administrative data, the, the two best kinds of data. Um, and so, so basically, they are looking at uh, what happens in states that expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act versus states that did not expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. They are combining uh, survey data to see who got into Medicaid with administrative data uh, that gives them mortality records, and they are looking at people aged 55 to 64, which is to say uh, old people who don't have Medicare, to see what's going on because old people are more likely to, to die, I guess. They're trying right, to right. It. The logic of this is basically if you want to look at the effects of Medicaid expansion because obviously Medicaid expansion uh, wasn't it's kind of an accidental natural experiment, right? Yes. Insofar as it was supposed to be nationwide, and then the Supreme Court said, eh, you can opt out. So there are now, like, there's this very easy thing you can do where you can look at states where they didn't expand Medicaid versus states where they did. But the authors of this paper are taking the view that if you just look globally at the entire population of these states, you're going to understate the effects of Medicaid expansion because only a small percentage of these people are kind of on the margin, right? Like they're 
we can predict that people who live who have incomes under a certain percent of the federal poverty line are probably if they live in a Medicaid expansion st- state going to get Medicaid going to get expanded Medicaid where if, whereas if they don't they're not you know or if they don't have a certain educational attainment then they're probably likely to fall into that income bracket right. so this this the study is kind of isolating the group most likely to benefit and then looking at what are the effects of that group. Yes, and they are finding um, that there is a significant decrease in mortality uh, in in expansion states and that they say about 15,600 uh Extra people have died per year due to a lack of Medicaid expansion, uh, primarily in Texas and Florida, but other states with with fewer people. Um, so that's a that's a that's a lot. And that's this is a, like th- this is, this isn't just like mortality. They actually isolate this to like disease deaths in particular. There isn't a huge difference in like deaths by car accidents or other things where having health care or not is not going to be the primary determinative factor in whether you succeed. So it is pretty suggestive evidence that this isn't just because, like, they're healthier people or they have other things in their states that are better. It's that this in particular is what's causing people to live longer in Medicaid expansion states. Something I also thought was interesting was the age range that they used, which was, uh, based on the reading, was about, like, 55 to 64. And especially because I think that that's also helpful because once you get a slightly over that age cohort, Death is slightly more inevitable, shall uh-huh. we say. But I think, you know, 55, it's coming for 64, us all. It, I mean, it is. It is the stalking horse of the, our mortal coil. You know, I thought that was a particularly interesting choice because that is something to which if you are healthy, you will live. If you are not healthy or do not have access to health care, you may not live. And I thought that was an interesting way of doing it where you could actually really, you know, this is not just dying by old age. This is about specifically, as Dara put it, about disease. I do want to talk a little bit about the methodology because I think Matt made a joke about, you know, survey plus administrative data. But like what's actually going on here is they took data from the American Community Survey, which is the thing that used to be known as the long form census, the more frequent, more comprehensive data survey product that the census puts out and linked it to other census records so that the ACS was giving them the information on you know, isolating this population who was most likely to benefit. And then these other records, this other database was giving them the information on whether they, you know, remained alive or not. It's fascinating to me to see this kind of obvious linkage between census databases in this particular moment in time, because right now, in the wake of the Supreme Court decision that the Trump administration couldn't, you know, add a question about citizenship to the census, the Census Bureau has been directed to find ways to make it possible to identify who is a citizen in census data through other means, which has raised a lot of concerns among progressives about kind of data privacy and security and not being able to link databases that could be used to identify people for potentially malicious ends. But database linkage right now has, has historically been used as a research tool. And there really are good questions, I think, about whether the potential for misuse by the government is something that really needs to be steered away from or whether studies like this that literally couldn't happen under really, really strict data privacy regimes that didn't give people access to interoperable records, uh, individually linked interoperable records, whether you know that's kind of worth the risk in theory that something could be used in a malicious manner down the road. I mean, this is obviously not the 
the core of the immigration policy dispute in the United States. But, like, no. it's, it's an example of how harmful it is to just have this, like, settled, reasonably well-integrated population of millions of people without legal status, right? Because it then turns all kinds of questions about other things into sort of backdoor, how are you you handling that, right? Um, if you have a solution through the front door, like, then you can have administrative records uh, that, that work fine. Um, you know, I, I, I also wanted to think about this study because there's been a ton of attention paid so far uh, to the 2020 presidential election, uh, but this is still the year 2019, um, and there are elections happening next week in Kentucky, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And in Louisiana— um, if the Democratic governor loses, it's very likely that the state will roll back Medicaid expansion somewhat. Uh, the candidate, uh, the, the Republican nominee there has – what he's said he's going to do is something that I'm pretty sure you can't do, uh, which is let the people who are already on Medicaid keep it but freeze new enrollment. Uh, but at any rate, he's he's hostile. He's skeptical. In Kentucky, if the Republican governor loses, uh, the Democrat is going to sort of um, – roll back uh, some very harsh administrative burdens that Republicans have put on there. More people will get Medicaid. And in Mississippi, it looks like a real long shot. Uh, but the attorney general of Mississippi is a Democrat. Um, and so he's a he's a strong candidate. He's a, a few points behind in the polls. If he wins, uh, that will bring Medicaid expansion to one of the poorest states. And People seem less uh, intellectually and morally uh, invested in these state-level Medicaid expansion controversies. But, like, the point of this paper is that the stakes of that are, are quite big. You know, the, the dollars involved are relatively small. The changes you need to make to give people life-saving medical care are relatively small. But it makes a big difference in people's lives. So I would encourage everyone to pay attention to their state Medicaid politics. I agree. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think anyone who is a listener of the weeds and lives in a state that has elections in next week. Well, I would hope that none of y'all needed to be reminded, but uh, you should you should go read up on some things. Absolutely. Um, So, okay, uh, we're going to bring it it to a stop there. Um, Thanks, guys. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Thanks to our engineer today, Malachi Brodus, and to our producer, Jackson Bierfeldt. And the weeds will be back on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.